Hey gang, Sam here. In this episode of GarageCast, we talked to Cody Gray from Goodhue Boat Company. Cody's actually the vice president at Goodhue, but he will tell you his actual position is the acting president of the Neil Pascal fan club. And I'm pretty sure that fan club has about two members in there. So I had a great time talking to Cody. He has some interesting background on both the power sport and marine side of the fence. And we got into the marine acquisition model towards the end of this podcast. I think you'll find some great, interesting insight on that. So enjoy this podcast with Cody. We're going to do our best to get new thinking out there. There's going to be discussions centered around growth and new thinking. That's where those great ideas come from, exploring them together. Nuggets that you can go back and put into your dealership that'll help you make more money. This is GarageCast. Welcome to GarageCast. We have another fun episode, man. We're we're taking us down the marine path on this one, which uh, we're super excited about the guy that we have on, Dantzler. We're, we're overdue on some, you know, on bank. We've been doing a lot of power sports, so I'm glad we're getting a lot more marine in here. Yeah, we have a few more marine coming up after this, gentlemen, but let's just get right to this and, and introduce Cody Gray from Goodhue Boat Company. Cody has a really cool story, a backstory of how he got here and and kind of his relationships with OEMs that we're going to dig into and just an overall philosophy of kind of checking out multi-rooftops and, and what it takes to run a big organization like this. So with no further ado, Cody Gray, thank you so much for taking the time. Awesome. Tony, Sam, thank you guys. Appreciate uh, the opportunity to be here. Right on. Yeah, man. Yeah, we uh, we we were talking before we press record, and and Cody's working off a very minimal amount of sleep uh, coming into this, and he's training for some sort of race. What race are you training for? Tell tell the listeners what you're training for. So nothing super hardcore, nothing super exciting. It's a, a half a marathon in Muskoka, Ontario, Canada. Uh, second year in a row with uh, you know a friend of mine, fellow twenty club uh, member, Marine One member, Jordy. Yeah, fellow podcast interviewee. We had Jordy Newlands on the podcast. So I was hoping you're going to tell me you kicked his ass last week, but next year, you got to get him next year. Next year, more training. I'll get him next year. <laughs> yeah. Nice. You know, Tony, uh, Cody came to one of our first Marine groups, um, founding member of the Marine One group when I was moderating that out of the gate and uh, learned very quickly kind of what his unique background was. And I learned yep. it because. I don't know that I was paying attention in the intro, to be honest, but all of a sudden when the content started coming out of his mouth, like a, like a, uh, a well-oiled 20 club member. And I'm like, where did that come from? That, that that's yeah. an interesting background. And yeah. that's a teaser that's coming up for sure. That Sam's going to ask here in just a sec, but you know, Cody, for, for the listeners out there, you have a history that spans both motorcycles and boats. Uh, give uh, our listeners your background. Where are you from? How did you stumble into, you know, the first career foray and how did you end up here? Well, like most people, I feel like in the marine industry, I started out as a potato farmer in Idaho, right? Similar story. <laughs> Everybody's been Said there. Said no one ever. That's <laughs> that, that is awesome. <laughs> okay. Grew up, you know, racing, not racing dirt bikes, riding dirt bikes and occasionally doing some some racing. I knew that I would never be fast enough to do that for a living, right? And so I thought I would wrench on them instead. 
a really smart recruiter from Motorcycle Mechanics Institute stopped into our high school one day into our ag program. We had like small engine class and that type of thing. And so he recruited some of the students out of that classroom to go into boat repair, auto industry, motorcycle industry, of course, is what piqued my interest. So I went down to MMI right after uh, right after high school from uh, Idaho, which was a little bit of a shock. Farm boy in Idaho, uh, landing in the big city of Orlando, going to school and uh, and going to school, you know, at nights, being a welder, you know, kind of working in a fab shop and, and doing that type of thing during the day and MMI uh, at night. And the only thing I had for transportation, of course, was a motorcycle and it rains. Dan, so you know this, it rains every day in Florida. So on my way from work to school, you know, I would get rained on, on the motorcycle. Wasn't smart enough to... What were you riding? What was the first motorcycle? You're, you're not going to believe this. Oh, come on. I it will. Was, it was a 400cc Honda. I, I forget. Is it hydromatic or hydrostatic? It was a two-speed, but no clutch automatic mm. motorcycle. Now, huh. now I'm curious. Hydromatic. Yeah, that, you, you've been watching Grease too many times. Hydrostatic. <laughs> I'll have to dig that up while we're talking here. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you're getting rained on, going back and forth from work to school. Yeah, MMI uh, finished that up, went back to southern Idaho and, and started wrenching at a local Yamaha shop and riding dirt bikes every every weekend. I don't know if you guys know a cool place in that area where we would use where we would go and ride all of the time, which is the St. Anthony Sand Dunes. Yes, heard of it. So people talk about Glamis. Glamis has a lot more, I think, name recognition, but the steepest sand in North America is in this little town called St. Anthony, Idaho. So we would go and rip dirt bikes over there. That was great. I had an amazing time. I actually moved to Spain for about two years, uh, you know, for like a mission for my church. Did that for a couple of years, learned the Spanish language, came back to the same Yamaha shop to work afterwards, and then got a phone call from a recruiter for Harley Davidson saying they were looking for someone that had mechanical experience and education on motorcycles and also spoke the Spanish language. And they asked if I would be interested. At the time, I was working at the at the Yamaha shop, but I don't know if you guys have experienced this probably in your uh, in your travels and dealings with uh, with power sport dealers and and staff and in your twenty clubs and things. But we would make fun of Harleys all the time in the Yamaha shop. Sure, right? of course. And but the but the thing is, as soon as a bike would come in, like the the owner would maybe buy a motorcycle, you know, he'd buy a Fat Boy at the auction and bring that into the showroom. And dude, we would fight over who got to PDI that motorcycle and who got to drive it around town. So we made fun of them, but at the same time, we always wanted to ride them. You know, we, we always wanted to, you know, be involved somehow in a, in a Harley if it came into the shop. Certainly back then, there's just an allure with Harley and like who's riding them and the mystique about it. We can talk about how that's changed or we think it's changing a bit, but um, yeah, that's, that's interesting, right? You make fun of them, but then as soon as it comes in, you, you swarm to it. It's not quite the, Quote, Honda Matic from 1981 that you were on, the 400, which 
it's interesting. It is the uh, it's the name of their clutchless fluidic drive bikes. So no clutch, no clutch. It was it was amazing. It was a great bike. I don't know why that didn't catch on. Huh? Yeah, it looks like it looks like what became their CB line, right? CB five hundred, right. CB seven fifty. Yeah, it's a good classic motorcycle. So allure to Harley. Okay. So, so, that so there you? you go. You speak Spanish. You're wrenching on Harley. Are you, they, did they want you to wrench on Harley's? Well, how did that happen? So the, the position that, that Harley was hiring for that they had, uh, that they were recruiting for was in the tech support area, tech service. I think it's still maybe called that tech service TSRs, right? The guys on the phones, technicians have a problem. They need some help. They call in to the factory and, uh, and that's, that's who they get. That was me. So uh, I did that for about five years, uh, about 20, 25,000 phone calls, you know, during that time. And uh, it was just an amazing, an amazing training ground. Met the coolest people, had the greatest time, you know, started to do some more education uh, when I was there. I got an undergrad degree while I was there in, in Wisconsin doing night school and took some additional positions uh, with the company uh, after that, that eventually got me into uh, New England. I was going to say, this sounds like a, a motorcycle industry. This doesn't sound like Marine whatsoever. <laughs> right. and, and I do. I have a follow-up question. How do you say shift shaft seal in Spanish? Shift shaft seal. Oh my gosh. Come on. Or stator, or I don't know, anything. How do you, <laughs> like, 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 how do you say anything to a technician in Spanish? Give me a line. The, the, the funniest part about that is depending on who you're talking to and what part of the world they're in, yeah, totally there is a different. completely different vocabulary for yep. every single one of these parts. And it was, it was funny. One of my interviews, actually a phone interview that I had when I was applying for this job was an interview in Spanish. And that was the thing that we were talking about was some of the, some of the terminology and some of the funny uh, you know, crazy words for different things, depending on what country you come from. That's awesome. Which you can imagine from British English and American English, right? The hood and a bonnet and, you know, things like that. Yeah, It, it exactly. continues in the Spanish language too. Same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Tony doesn't know what a stator is anyhow. He doesn't know what any of that stuff. You could have fooled hate. him. You could have said, como say stator and, you know. <laughs> como say stator. <laughs> so, so you end up in New Hampshire and, and then what? How, how do we find our way to the Marine space? Met uh, an owner of a marina as a customer and became friends. And we would chat at Sunday dinners and barbecues about the industry and the business. And they would ask me questions about, uh, well, we're, we're having this problem with the business, or how do we change this uh, pay plan? Or, uh, you know, we, we want to improve some metric or some number in the business. And the conversations were identical to those that I was having every single day with Harley dealers. Uh, very, very small differences. It was, it was amazing to me how similar, especially in a Northern climate, right? It's a seasonal business. It's a want-based industry. And it was amazing how, how similar these two industries were. And so we chatted, you know, I, I helped them a little bit. I did a little consulting with them, I guess, on, uh, on the side in trade for, use of cool cobalt boats and, and things like that. Nice. And eventually they said, Hey, we, we have this Marina. It's a cool spot. This is an interesting industry. We feel like we could really grow in this industry. If we dial a couple things in, do you want to come on board as a partner and let's grow this thing? And that was in 2017. And 
uh, the rest is history. So uh, here we are. We've got uh, you know five locations, and uh, you know we're adding three more by the end of the calendar year. So some some fun growth. So let's put Marine in the parking lot for a second. I want to circle one more question back on the Harley space since you're in a very unique situation to compare and contrast both sides. And I think you alluded to that a little bit, that there's a lot of similarities. But if you look back at the Harley space and some of the conversations you were having with with the business acumen, and that's what I noticed when you came into the 20 Club and you sat down, you were very dialed into the business minded conversation in the composite, even though the composite was probably a bit new to you you simply jumped right into that. So com- compare and contrast the Harley space to Marine. Easier, harder, clientele, want-based. Do you find any need-based going on? I don't see it with either side of the fence there, but what are your thoughts? Two things that jumped out to me right away when I got into the Marine space. One of them was people would ask me all the time, hey, what's, what's it like? Uh, what's that transition like going from motorcycles in, into boats? And I would tell people half jokingly that the customers are so much nicer in the motorcycle space. Mm. Half really jokingly. half joking. Huh. And, interesting. And you know, people would chuckle about that because you know, you kind of imagine, especially coming from Harley, that was the question, right? Harley to boats. And you know, the the customers are trickier. The the Harley is a high-end motorcycle brand, and the the boats that we sell, our, our marina companies focus on premium uh, brands and premium products. And it was it was interesting to me that coupled with you know, so a high-end client with high expectation that's that's used to in other areas of their life used to premium experiences, and you you couple that with a very short seasonal kind of play industry, right? You've, you've got how many weeks of summer a boat breaks down or something doesn't go as planned and everything's an emergency. And it, 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 feel, it felt a little bit more flexible in, uh, in the motorcycle space. And, and of course, where I was, my perspective being a little bit different coming from the factory, coming from corporate, and then being put right into retail again, uh, on the boat business was a different perspective as well. But so that was one thing. Customers are a, a little bit different. Their expectations are are a little bit different. Um, as far as the business goes, it's 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 amazingly similar. You have the same departments, right? You have uh, in, in our case at least you have the same seasonality. And I, I would say interestingly, there is more opportunity, I feel like, and less competition maybe in the in the boat space. I don't know if everyone would, would agree with me or, or is in the same space as us. But I, I feel like marinas specifically, you have boat dealerships that are roadside and you have marinas that are waterfront and they're just simply not making more waterfront marinas. Right. And so there's a little bit of a barrier for people to compete in that space. So those are some, I, I think, principal differences as far as the business goes. Yeah. Amazingly similar. What do you, do you think maybe you find it to be a little bit easier on the Marine side or, or less competitive because I'm sitting here thinking about segments, right? When, when you talk about yachts and you talk about wake surfing boats, those, those are, those are different games that are being played. But if I talk about two wheeled motorcycle riding and four wheel ATV, UTV riding, those are all sold out of the same shop and not necessarily on the Marine side, right? So maybe when you siphon it down by segment, 
there's just less people playing in that space. Is that fair? For sure. And, and that creates its own challenges, though, too, because when you think about cars or even power sports to a certain extent, you have, I, I don't want to offend anybody by, by saying that there's a, a commodity or a commoditization with those items, but there are a lot more volume. There's a lot more volume. There are a lot more eyeballs. And you have secondary markets in, in auctions and things like that, right? So there's, there's a challenge in the marine industry that involves inventory that I think is different than uh, exists in some of these other industries. And, and I'll give you an example. You have an aging inventory unit in the marine space that's on your floor. Number one, it's very expensive Yes, in most cases, right? So you're talking big dollars. Uh, the next thing that's different about that is to what levers do you have access to to pull if you realize that this thing is aging and you need to get rid of it? If you have a house, a car, a motorcycle, for the most part, you can just keep marking that down, marking it down at some mm. frequency and threshold, and it will go away. Or you have this auction outlet, wholesale outlet. Yeah. And I, I feel like that's different on the boat space. You, you can, in, in February, you have a slow turning ski boat and you can mark it down, mark it down, mark it down. If there are no eyeballs looking at that or, or for it, it doesn't matter what the price is. It's not going to move. And if you don't have an auction uh, wholesale venue, then how do you get rid of that boat? How do you, how do you move it? Hmm. Begs the question, why don't we have an auction wholesale outlet in that space? For sure. Mm -hmm. There is no main player rooftop involved in the marine space. Am I correct on that one, Cody? In in what way? In, in as far as wholesaling, as far as getting rid of it that way to an auction. Okay. Got it. Yeah. All right. Yeah, as you said, you're you're a partner at Goodhue. You guys span the entire country, so we can really truly say that you go from Maine to California, you know, in, in looking at two of the dealerships. One is in Maine. One is in Newport Beach, California. I mean, you can't seem to get farther than that unless you went to Hawaii or Alaska, right? But you, you also center around the New Hampshire area is where the kind of point of operations is. Um, what are the difficulties involved with an organization that is spread out and so large? And specifically, what scorecards do you use to coach the game as the game is being played um, with so many points? I mean, it it's it's funny. I talked to a lot of dealers over the years, whether it be in the Marine or the power sports space, and they'll, they'll ask me, you know, what, what are your thoughts on, you know, I'm thinking about buying a second store. And I tell them a second store isn't twice as much work. It's exponentially more work. So how do you, how do you keep everything in a span of control with that much distance and that many rooftops? When they're close by, it's an amazing advantage because you can, you, you can share inventory, you can share expertise and staff in a, in a, in a physical way, right? That those individuals can, pop over to a store and and hang out and show somebody through a process or help someone train. So when those stores are close by, and that's what we started with, these stores were, the, our first two stores were on the same lake. So we, we realized some awesome efficiencies right off the bat by sharing resources and sharing inventory. So that piece of it 
made it uh, better and easier. And we were stronger right off the bat by having multiple locations. So the distance piece is, is crazy. We, so one piece that we learned a little bit later on or, or more recently was when we purchased a location in a different state. Mm. So it's still only a few, maybe two hours away from our main, you know, from our principal locations or from our, uh, our mothership as some people in the, in our Marine group have, have named it. So our mothership central location, it's only about two hours away. And so it's still possible to take a ride over. Um, it's still easy to move an inventory unit back and forth certainly can pick up a phone and we're all great nowadays with teams or zoom or something. Right. But a new state has new rules around yeah. sales taxes are different mm-hmm. employment laws and things are different. And so your back house, your, your, your controller and your office manager staff, like your human resources, all of a sudden has to take a step to a new level. Yeah. When you cross something like a state boundary. And so honestly, like that is something that was a little bit more shocking than the distance was regulatory environment and, and rules and things with different, uh, you know, with different states. Mm. Got it. Your, your second part of the question around reporting and, and data and things, there are some really great examples. I mean, I love the, you know, the case study, the case methodology of copy and steal everything. Because <laughs> um, I'm not a smart guy, I, I'm not going to come up with some really cool new idea. But we know great people, both through garage composites and you know through the OEMs, where we've been given some really great examples on that. And so you really do when you separate and, and get distance between everyone, or just simply having multiple rooftops that you know, the leadership has to bounce around to, you can't have your eyeballs on everything at all times. And so you do have to have uh, some reporting. So, you know, there's similar to what a lot of people do. There's a, you know, a daily reporting that individual department managers have to, uh, you know, punch in some key metrics that are happening in the day. One simple example in service department is how many hours were worked today by technicians and how many hours were built. Yep. Right. And then the, the general manager at the end of the day or early the next day has to report that out to, uh, you know, to myself or to corporate. And it just is a process that forces everybody to focus on the numbers. And because otherwise we get busy, we get caught in the swirl and we don't look at the numbers unless you have a process that forces us to. Well, and you're talking about between multiple rooftops, that consistency that's coming in every day. And I think I think you'd agree with me that we want the experience for our customers to be consistent no matter what rooftop they're coming into. And that always goes back to training. So tell us a little bit about consistent training internally within your team. And and then I want you to dovetail your state associate your state association. So not necessarily the live component of it, but you guys have done some amazing stuff online specific to training. So can you walk us through training and how that fits inside of Goodhue? Sure. So we're, we're kind of slow to get into that. I think that we were a little bit lulled into this growth and how some systems and things that we needed to have in place, one of those most important ones being training. If everybody is pretty close together, you don't really feel the need for that as acutely. And then when you start to spread out, all of a sudden you think, 
you see something happen at one location or a process kind of deviate or change. And you wonder, how did that happen? Like, why did that person do that? And they didn't know any better. Like they didn't have that SOP documented or, or they didn't they didn't go through that training. So it seems clear to you. It seems clear to everybody else. But to them, uh, they didn't know. And so we started and we're actually just, I, I would consider it still on the, on the beginning front of uh, an internal university where th- that kind of collects a lot of resources. We have resources that are great through the manufacturers. We have resources through... Uh, through garage composites, and then we have our own uh, SOPs and processes and things that that we do. And you do have to have, I think, maybe for any organization at any size, you have to bring all of those things together into one central spot that everybody can, uh, you know, can use so that we're on the same sheet of music. As far as the dealer association goes inside of the state of New Hampshire, you know, you're talking about, I, I really like the case copy and steal everything, right? It'd be great if all the other states would copy and steal what's going on inside of New Hampshire. But on that website, is that some of the collective training that's put up there? Is that sponsored by every dealer? And if so, how is that? How is that done? How is that paid for? Yeah, we we contribute uh, a fee to that Marine Trades uh, Association. And it's awesome. It's been really revitalized, uh, I feel like, by uh, you know, by a, you know, a friend and, and competitor of ours in the state, uh, and we're working together. Actually, we had we had a call earlier today on some wake boat wake sports legislation that's going to be coming up again in the state. And so, we get together and we talk about uh, you know strategies to combat that, and we and we we talk about training our staff to educate customers on how to be a responsible boater. And that kind of coordination with within the industry, within competitors, uh, I think has like a special power, uh, you know, somehow when, uh, you know, when that group gets together and, and decides to do something, uh, you know, we, we can make some we, make, we can make some magic happen. Very interesting. So, you know, in addition to ongoing training, you have a very strong dealer attended state association. What is the key to that dealer participation and how do you get other states to replicate that model? Wow, it, it kind of takes a spark plug. Like you, ha- you have to have that dealer association in, in the state of New Hampshire, for example, was was pretty sleepy. I think for a long time, you know, one of one of the key things that they would do is coordinate how all the dealers could get their you know their shrink wrap together at the end of the season and recycle it. Like that's great, but how does that you know really move the industry and, and move sure. everybody forward? And then, uh, you know, this individual who a lot of people know, Pete McCallum, uh, you know, mm-hmm. joined as the uh, as the president and he was kind of that spark plug. So you really do. It, it comes down to, I guess, with everything, it comes down to leadership. Right. And, uh, you know, someone has to take some leadership and they have to have a problem to solve. And, and for us, the problem to solve that brought us all together was some legislation in the state that could potentially hurt you know, the industry and, and hurt the the users of the product. And so you kind of have that, uh, that call to action that goes beyond maybe your, your own personal business interest, at least on the short term. And you link arms to, you know, together with, with people in the industry and you make something happen. So, you know, for us, it was, it was two parts. We had an issue to solve and then there was some strong leadership that came in to help everybody uh, row in the same direction. 
it's funny when you do get together, and I think this is probably true with our 20 club environment, right? There's that lull in between meetings. Now, some of our groups are extremely active and there is no lull at all. But some people, they come to the meeting and then it gets quiet and then you get back to the meeting and you're like, oh yeah, this is why this is so valuable. And I think just in several times of presenting for your association, when I'm in the room and there's a hundred dealers in attendance in that room, like that's a, that's strong, that's exciting. And then some of the things that we end up talking about during the day relative to protecting the dealers and what's going on in the state is just, I think that's the synergy that the dealers feel. So to your point, a spark to get it started and then it sort of self-perpetuates, but I'm going to shift gears on you. Let's talk about, let's talk about OEMs here for a second. When it comes to manufacturers, you've got a very special philosophy relative to the relationship with the manufacturers and you had the Harley exposure. Now you have several boat brand exposures. What is that philosophy and the relationship that you try to cultivate with the manufacturers? Well, maybe it's uh, maybe it's influenced, or it, it has to have been influenced from my time uh, at you know at working for an OEM and and kind of seeing what happens behind the scenes. And and I think it's easy to uh, it, it's easy to to get the impression that it's a you know it's a company. We're a, we're a small dealership business, and then there's this big company, and and it's us against them. And Harley Davidson certainly was a big company compared to any of these boat manufacturers. And so that's a different scale. But at, at the end of the day, the boat manufacturers or the motorcycle manufacturers are also made up of people. Mm. And, you know, they're doing the best that they can. And they've got, you know, battles that they're, you know, fighting either, you know, at home or, uh, you know, with with their boss or internally and, and strategies that they're that they're trying to figure out. It was it was really interesting as, as I would travel around as a representative for a manufacturer and you had dealers that had different philosophies about, uh, you know, about the need for the resources from the manufacturer or, or need for support from a manufacturer and just kind of their overall feel or, or vibe, you know, between uh, between the OEM and, uh, you know, whether it was conscious or subconscious, the dealers that treated me really great as a, as a representative, uh, you know, of the company, I, I feel like I did what I could, you know, to, to reciprocate that. Mm. And, uh, you know, and I, and I've carried that with me, I think as a, you know, now kind of, you know, switching to the other, you know, to back into retail and, you know, I have these representatives from the manufacturers and, uh, you know, and, and different th- departments within these OEMs that I have to contact from time to time and, you know, how you treat them and, uh, you know, the, 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 the amount of maybe grace or, you know, letting some things slide every once in a while, or just, uh, you know, just overall being, uh, you know, a little bit more understanding, I think goes uh, a really long ways. And, and, and I think it's helped us with, with those relationships with the OEMs. That definitely works. When when you have when we have OEMs in the room, as you know, we have several OEM sponsored groups, Power Sport and Marine. And when people are in that mindset, it's hard not to be in that space when there's the person right there. It's not just this brand that you're looking at. There's the person from the brand, and they're telling you these are the struggles we've had internally, and here's what we're going to do about it. And it, it we wish everybody could um, play the game on the retail level, right? But they are wholesalers at their core, and they need to move products. So I think having some of those considerations that you just laid out are very, uh, very advantageous to the group as a whole. Cody, uh, 
you know, without mentioning names, I mean, are there, are there some manufacturers out there that you just, you just can't get through to, you can't get along with that even meeting with them and trying to have that personal relationship that they're just not in it to win it. Like you are. I haven't experienced that yet. Honestly, that's great. I, I think and that, that's saying something because you, your list of manufacturers is like, you know, you got to scroll through, through them. Yeah. I think ultimately like there are reps or individuals or personalities that are just simply different than ours. Right. And, and we don't maybe want to hang out with them after a, after a dealer show because we're, you know, we're different or we have different philosophies on, uh, on life and, and business and things. But, you know, you can be nice to everybody and, and they'll, they'll typically reciprocate. Um, yeah. I, I've been impressed as things have kind of shifted, right? We've, we've talked and you guys have certainly mentioned many times, you know, in, in your most recent podcast, uh, especially about just how things are changing, uh, you know, economics uh, are, are different and strategies have to be different and things in the, both with the manufacturer and with the dealers. And I've been impressed with the response really from all of our OEMs as we, Look at what do we have currently in inventory, and how are we planning, you know, for our next order schedules and our next allocations. And in in almost all of those cases, or probably in all of those cases, the orders are lower and lower than prior years, right? And so we we notify them, or we we have that conversation with them, and say, yeah, I, I know that the plan or the the allocation is this amount, and we're going to order less than that. And these manufacturers have done i think the opposite of maybe what what happened in you know 08 09 and they've you know pumped the brakes maybe not as as fast as as they should have in in some cases but what they haven't done is put a lot of pressure on us as as a dealer to take product that we don't really want to have right mm. now so that pressure has been has been super low at least in the experience that uh, that I've had with these guys so Switching gears a bit here is whether it's auto or power sports or the marine industries, consolidation is happening everywhere we look. So is consolidation simply the only way forward in the next, you know, 10, 20 years kind of thing? Absolutely. And and I think it's kind of happened or is 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 has progressed a lot more in a lot of other uh industries. I think mm-hmm. the thing that's maybe most unique about speaking about marine specifically is there's such a real estate play in, in the marine space that that is important but not so critical uh, or or not such a such a big factor in uh, you know maybe power sports and uh, and auto and things and so that's a real differentiator i think in, in the marine industry that that surprises me that it hasn't uh, you know really happened yet and it, and it's just since COVID really, that this consolidation has, uh, you know, ha- has really taken off in, in the marine industry. And, and most of it is because the interest in, uh, in the real estate. So, <laughs> uh, which is, a, you know, a whole other podcast about how fragmented that, that industry is and how, um, you know, real estate ha- has kind of consolidated in different areas, mm-hmm. right? It was, a long time ago, it was, uh, you know, self storage units and and mobile home parks, and then office buildings, and then you know multifamily, and 
you know, all of these different things in the shopping, you know, right. All those things in their own time went through a consolidation. Mm-hmm. And right now, I mean, I can't remember the statistic that I heard last, but there were like 11,000 marinas in the United States. And I think that these are obviously varying sizes, right? Some massive and some very, very, yeah. uh, you know, tiny, but 11,000. And of those, there are like 10,000 owners. <laughs> and so highly, highly fragmented, right? It's a, it's a, it's a very, uh, very interesting. If, if you compare that to auto or really probably any other industry, uh, yeah. it's not that fragmented. And so th- that's going to change. You look at that statistic, right? 11,000 marinas, 10,000 yeah. owners. Watch that stat over mm. the next timeline, over the next you know five or 10 years. It's going to yeah. be very different. Interesting. That, that is interesting. It's extremely fragmented. I didn't know that number. That's a that's a huge number of people playing their own game, really. And let me ask you, and I don't want you to give away any secret sauce on this next question, but I'm interested in your acquisition model. Um, on the power sports side of the fence, as you know, we look at transactional ratios. I always look at what a store could have done, and then I take that per unit sold number, and that tells me the revenue that could have happened out of a store. And so then I back my way into what is someone asking for a a three times multiple blue sky, whatever it happens to be. I'm always looking at what the transactions tell me the store could have done to see if that's a good number. I don't give a damn what the store did do. I care what it could have done. So I'm wondering if there's a metric you're looking at, and maybe it's real estate, maybe based on what you just said, that's how you go into these deals. How do you look at a new store? And is there a key metric that you're using to to take the first pass at it? If there was more data, I think in some of the, the dealers and some of these marinas, we would probably be more interested in in some of that. So we certainly look at a, a couple of things. One of the items that we look at is what's happening in that market already. So we get information from SSI, right? Statistical surveys, and we kind of see what you know what's in the market. Maybe we have a marina that we could add one of our current brands at, like let's say Mastercraft or Cobalt or something. And we look at that market and we see what's being sold there now. There are 60 boats sold every year over the last five years uh, in this market. So is that interesting or not uh, for us, right? And we can look at pontoons and we can look at, you know, cruisers or bow riders. And so that gives you some volume kind of information. Like this is the market, right? This is what the market can support in terms of volume or what it's supporting right now, or at least what the demand is right now. Uh, that's an important metric that we look at, but I would say the most important one is actually real estate values. So residential real estate values and and volume. So if you look at a lake and it has 100 houses that have a dock, and the average you know sale price is two hundred thousand dollars, that's probably not a lake that you're going to be able to sell a hundred new boats that are valued at $200,000, right? Because that's the whole, that's the whole real estate valuation. Yeah. But you, you look at, and and sometimes it's a, I I make it sound scientific, you know, potentially, but sometimes it just makes sense looking at a map, you know, you, you see a Lake Norman or, you know, Lake of the Ozarks or, you know, Coeur d'Alene or Winnipesaukee, right? And you look at those and you say, obviously there's a lot of money there. Obviously there are a lot of boats. If you can get into that space, you automatically have an opportunity. Now you just have to put in the systems and the, and the people to make that and, and the products to make that happen. 
crazy that I never even thought of that, right? With relative to the water, when you get when you get inland, like what does that look like? We we look and you can ride motorcycles everywhere, right? So I mean, obviously some off road riding is going to be better in some places and worse in others, but you can get out on some two wheeled product all the time, all over the country, and of course you're going to look at that. That's it's interesting, Tony. I wonder about the 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 real estate model moving forward, not necessarily with lakes, but just looking at owning the real estate and then transactions maybe is the second place metric that you're looking at. Um, it's going to change moving forward. We're going to see what happens. Works for the Catholic church and McDonald's. So, <laughs> so, so we shall see. I wow. Mean, that's a whole nother podcast. Right? No, that's, that's not, those aren't dumb organizations. Uh, so yeah. Last one. So what are the upsides and the downsides for the customer specifically with the loss of their mom and pop dealership that become part of a large dealer group? No, it's, it's interesting because we've, we've had several different experiences as, as we've acquired some of these locations. And mm-hmm. in each case, they have done, they've had great teams and they've had great locations. Maybe they haven't had the best facilities and, and that type of thing. But at the end of the day for the customer, the facility doesn't necessarily affect them so much. It, it's great to go into a you know a, a well manicured uh, you know garden that that surrounds an entrance or something like that, and and have beautiful buildings with with awesome lighting and, and beautiful mm-hmm. service shops and things. But at the end of the day, um, it's really the team and the people that make that customer's experience and their product and their time on the water uh, worth it. And so. I don't know that there is a huge difference for the customer. Honestly, I think it could go both ways. Like you said, the relationship could change because it turns into maybe more of a more of a corporate scenario where it was a it was a first name basis relationship, mm-hmm. uh, you know, scenario with with the mom and pop store. But that can also happen. With, you know, there are great examples of really strong, growing, you know, big dealers that. Uh, you know, that focus on that with their team and they make sure that that's part of uh, part of the plan and part of the experience is, is that that personalized one-on-one relationship with the customer is is principal. So I, I think the reason why I'm struggling with an answer on that is I think it's completely up to, uh, you know, that team and it could be a better experience and, it, and, and the experience can go away and, and, and it can become a more, uh, you know, corporate or more vanilla uh, you know, experience for them, or it can take a, a location or a marina business that just doesn't have the resources to really provide, uh, you know, timely and quality service to the customer. Yeah. And it can really elevate that so that they, uh, you know, so that they maximize their time on the water. Uh, it can really go both ways, man. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, well, you, good th- you think about that. staffing on that too, right? It, it's it's. I mean, the, the goal. The, the, the creme de la creme is to take the small hometown feel into the bigger big box operations um, and, and make it still feel like home for those people. So you can grow in volume and dollars and you can still make it feel like home. But Cody, I think you'll agree with me. If you don't have the staff, you can have all the best intentions in the world to create re- relationships. You simply can't get to everybody to foster those relationships. Absolutely. Absolutely. We, at some of our locations, I mean, we've, we've experienced both of those things where we have taken, uh, you know, a relationship with a customer that was really strong and, a, you know, a longstanding, uh, you know, relationship and good experience. And by something that we did in an effort to, you know, to change or be more efficient or, 
you know, or something, we've, we've created, uh, you know, a problem or a barrier. So we, we've seen that happen in real time where, where we were actually, you know, unintentionally, um, you know, had, had caused some of those problems. And so uh, it, it requires a lot of awareness, I think, to, uh, you know, to look really closely at, and, and, and these businesses are so different. Uh, you know, you, that's something that I think kind of surprised me uh, as, as we've grown and as we've taken on these different, uh, these different locations about, you know, just it can be the same brand and it can be a really similar body of water, but it's, it's kind of amazing at how, uh, you know, just how different they are, the culture and, and even, you know, the customer base uh, and everything is uh, anyway. So, uh, so interestingly different and, and you, you, you walk a really fine line if you try to change that. Right. Yeah. Same product all the way around. Different environment, different neighborhoods, different buildings, different all require that. I think the key is awareness that you just said. So, yeah, that's a good answer. This has been a lot of fun, Cody. Really appreciate your candor and and actually uh, a really cool history with what you do. So thank you so much for your honesty and your time. So for Cody Gray and Sam Dancer, I'm Tony Gonzalez. This has been GarageCast. Have a fantastic Tuesday. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, guys.